the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in. This is episode 117, episode 117. Ryan, we got some reviews coming in on the show today, man. Uh, it looks like we uh, you've been you've been pumping some stuff. I think we have three new reviews. Yeah, three new reviews. We you know, in just everyone knows we hadn't done this in a while. Um, the rating, which we're calling the rating, is the is the uh, the stars, and then the reviews. So we don't know if you leave stars. We thank you. We love it. We appreciate it. We just don't know who you are, so we can't thank you publicly. That's why we say a rating and a review. Um, we have three that did that. Um, first is Z Kimball one two four five. Great insight into Texas upstream activity. Five star review, which is all we accept. So that's wonderful. Hey guys, thanks for the hard work. I appreciate spending time exploring all sides of each debate, while compre- also comprehensively, comprehensively. I can't say that word. Covering upstream oil and gas. Best of luck and keep up the good work, Zach. Um, great podcast. Five stars from J Nay ninety three. Uh, great guys talk about the industry like Monday morning quarterbacks break down the league highly recommend people fresh out of school or grad school you will learn a lot about your future clients thank you Jay and finally the talking geek five stars the best petroleum industry podcast for Texans now I gotta quibble with this a little bit um I, I, I mean I think it's the best podcast in the world for everyone but but talking geek we'll take the five stars we're not you know beggars can't be choosers if you're in if you're in energy sector or either in texas or do business in texas then this podcast should be on auto download and play we agree with that thank you talking geek for the five stars now the reason we're pushing for this is we're trying to get the mount rushmore and i thought about this some josh if we get the Mount Rushmore status, top four business news podcast, I think we're gonna make some shirts, and like we'll have like a Mount Rushmore shirt. So we'll have like my big head, your mug, Nate's mug, and then we need like a fourth head because there's four on Mount Rushmore, and we'll get we'll get like I'm gonna say I don't know I we'll get a hundred two hundred shirts made up like that, and then we'll put like you know I don't know some kind of creative thing about us Mount Rushmore. I, I don't know. So textualguestpodcast.com. Send in your ideas. Who should be the fourth head on the Mount Rushmore? My head's big enough to cover two spots, so maybe maybe that's enough. I don't know. But we are trying to get the Mount Rushmore status. Um, so, five-star rating, five-star review. It really, really helps. We say that. We don't actually know how it helps because iTunes doesn't tell us any of this stuff. We're trying to get that Mount Rushmore status. And big news, Josh. We have been holding on this. Um, Nate, hop on here for a second. I know Nate's creeping in the background like he's not here. But Nate, how long have we have we have we been working on this since when? Um, shoot, March maybe. A long time. Okay, so Nate has been working despite what we say about him on when he's on here. Um, on getting together an oil and gas cruise. Now let's talk about this. This is not a sales cruise. It's not a marketing cruise. This is a cruise that we kind of like this show or Ellen and mine show. Um, it'd be seven days. I think we're looking out of the the Galveston area, right, Nate? Yep, Galveston down yep, the Western we, Caribbean. And we have some speakers who we've talked to. They folks that you've heard on this show before. Obviously, Josh, myself, Ellen um, will be there, um, and some guests that you are very familiar with. And it's just going to be um, seven days. We'll do three or four live events on the on the cruise. But here's the deal: 
we have to make sure that the interest is there before we commit to doing this. So here's what we're going to do. Nate, walk them through how this is going to work um, from the standpoint of where do they go, how do they sign up, and then um, I'll kind of come back in and explain why we're doing it this way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the idea right now is for people to go to oilandgascruise.com, that is oilandgascruise, all one word, dot com, and to go to a contact form there. It'll be right there on the front page to give us your first and last name, your email address, um, to express interest in going on the cruise. We want to get a lot of names into our into our database. And why are we going to do that, Ryan? Yeah, basically because we have to essentially pay for the rooms up front, which is fine, but we don't want to go and go through all this trouble and booking the speakers, uh, finalizing all those deals, unless we feel like there's a large enough audience. So um, if we get 250 people that go and say, you know what, um, you're not paying anything, you know, no contract, nothing like that, but 250 people say, yeah, I think this is something I would want to do, then we will go ahead and push forward. We're hoping for, was it March, April next year? Um, yep. Yeah. yeah. So, so late March. March. Yeah, late March, early April next year, we're shooting for. Um, we're going to give this a month. So if we have 250 people who sign up and say, yeah, I would be interested in going, um, in the next month, we will do this. If we don't, then we'll table it and see if we can do it again um, some other time. And so um, I think that's – is that everything? We're going to link to that in the show notes. Oilandgascruise.com um, will be in the show notes as well. Is that everything, Nate? That is all. And I want to remind people to go to Oil and Gas Cruise. That is all one word, Oil and Gas Cruise, spelled exactly like it sounds, .com and sign up. I was surprised I bought that domain without misspelling cruise. I was really worried about that. I had to spell check it a few times. Final <laughs> thing before we get into the show, because good grief, we got the announcements. We are shooting. Uh, we're going to see if Nate can pull this off to get on uh, Carl Icon on the show. There is a post on LinkedIn. I put Nate will find that. He will link it in there. I asked for folks to kind of comment, like, share. If you want to get a guy like Carl on, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to be hard, but because we're relatively unknown to probably someone like him. This is the right audience for it, though, Josh, I think. And so uh, leave your like, comment, tag some friends, uh, put in you know a question, and let's see if we can get Carl on. We got Nate on the, on the bat line trying to track him down, so we'll see how that turns out. Okay, enough announcements, Josh. Let's get into whatever it is we got to cover today. Well, Ryan, uh, one last thing. Uh, Mount Rushmore, we need four faces. Since our favorite listener is the president, I was thinking maybe uh, <laughs> get your Trump, Trump. the fourth face. <laughs> oh, well, hey, before we, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Our Speaker Says segment this week. Um, <laughs> did I tell you what he said? No. Oh, man. He sent one the other day. I was at a meeting somewhere, and he said, this is uh, Speakner. He said a lot of stuff, so uh, we'll have to get to more of it. He says, by the way, Trump is finished in 2020. So that is the official Speakner Says comment of the week. Uh, there's a lot more he said, and uh, just don't have time to get to it because we have a guest coming on. But anyways, so yeah, um, so <laughs> maybe a sad face Trump of 2020. I don't know. <laughs> Well, there was big news that came out this week, Ryan. Saudi uh, Aramco is planning to release an IPO sometime in early 2020. Uh, this is a report. Uh, I don't know if this date is hard or soft, but this could potentially be a, an enormous deal to open up next year. Um, and you know, we have a guest coming on here in a little bit, and I was going to ask him, him about this as well, what he thinks about this. 
Uh, what do you think about the IPO? Will this change much of the oil and gas scene next year by them going public? Yeah, you, you know, what I found interesting about this was um, maybe two weeks ago, they came out and said that they'd always wanted to do the IPO during this time period, which is not what they had said a few years ago. But with that being said, it feels like the Saudis must believe that despite the prices being soft now, that the prices would rise over the next year to two years. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't make sense to really go forward with the IPO if, if you thought prices were going to be down. There's, to my knowledge, no reason for them to rush this. Um, and so, um, of course, they may not really be interested in doing it. They could be talking because um, they've talked about it for a while now and it's never really, never really materialized. But I have thought about that. You know, if, if they're saying, hey, we're going to try and get this out next year, um, or you know 2021 then that that's a sign that they feel the prices will generally be pretty strong in my opinion um that mean you won't have a dip or anything like that but generally be strong um over that time period and so you know that's obviously i think a good indicator potentially for companies over here that if the saudis are believing that the price is going to be behind enough for them to um you know go through the ipo process then you know maybe it's a good sign for some of the, the folks over here that prices, while they're a little soft right now, might uh, might come up here next year. Man, they're looking for a two trillion dollar valuation back in 2016. My goodness, do they need a podcast to uh, <laughs> pump their show? Or? Yeah, I, yeah, two trillion. That's uh, that's not bad. That's not bad. And that wasn't even um, all of their all of their stuff that they own. I don't remember what what percentage it was, but it wasn't. It wasn't a hundred percent, or maybe maybe it started off a hundred percent. I can't remember, but at one point I know for sure it wasn't a hundred percent of everything they had. So it was a uh, um, mm. you would you'd assume it's worth more than that. Well, our good friend Sergio, who uh, who since abandoned us, he had a couple of articles that uh, he released that were pretty interesting. First one was for this week: Pioneer's big bet on the Midland Basin. Uh, Pioneer's been doubling down, going all in on the Permian. We've been talking about this for about a year. Uh, they're focusing on the east side of the Permian, and uh, and so they are, let's see, they filed for eight drilling permits over the past week, uh, horizontal wells um, split between Midland and Upton County. So going to be uh, interesting to see see how these do for them uh, in the Midland Basin, and, and also uh, looks like Midland's going to be really heating up. Uh, I know that uh, Echo Petrol is... is just the, the JV that Oxy has with Echo Petrol, they're going to be getting active out there pretty soon, I believe, as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, what I found interesting was he said that the um, the Delaware Basin is being drilled too aggressively, and he felt like the Midland Basin is kind of where it's going to be at and won't peak until the mid-2030s, where he expects the Delaware Basin to peak until 2024. It's comments like these that these guys make that I'm always I'm always – I'm always curious about, but I'm always kind of hesitant to go in with with both feet because, um, you know, you have to. We talk on the show. We'd like to see where people put their money at, not necessarily what they say. And so you have to kind of separate those things. And so I think now, um, over the next few years, we'll be able to, or you know, even the next year actually, you'll be able to see. You know, does Pioneer actually follow this, or was this something kind of a a um, 
a way to put pressure on the market. And, and one of the things you got to think about, Josh, is if you're out there in your publicly traded company A and your competitors are out there, publicly traded company B, C, and D, and if you come out and, and you say, well, man, we really like, in this case, we really like the Delaware Basin, um, but it's you know it's really expensive. It is being grilled um, aggressively. Um, the returns aren't as good, potentially. But we think there's a lot of money to be, be um be made there but all your competitors are really putting their 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 eggs in that basket and if you come out and say oh well that's kind of you kind of poor boy if you will you know <laughs> it might kind of put them in a unique position because they have to respond to that going oh well it's not you know it's not as bad as he's saying um so i always take this and go okay this is what they said now how how do they act and how do people respond to that because it's um it's not exactly the same thing as um going out and putting your money where your mouth is this is this this is this just you know, shoot from the hip, kind of like me and you're doing. You know, there's no real, no real stakes involved. So I'll, I'll be curious to see if Pioneer actually follows through with this, or if a year from now we're reading Pioneer going, oh well, we were wrong about that. You know, the projections have changed. The the the, the balls move moved uh, further back of the timetable. So that's what I think. Interesting about stories like that is, will this is this actually how it's going to shake out, or is Pioneer trying to position themselves um, through some other method? Yeah, that's interesting. And, and Mingo Sheffield, one of his comments that's here says, uh, if Midland Basin is the only basin growing past 2025, it will make Pioneer's properties worth twice as much money or three times as much money at some point in time over the next five to six years. So that's what's at stake. Um, like you said, though, that that's just a statement, uh, as, you know, how much stake is in it. Uh, that will be the thing to, to watch over the next three to five years for sure. Right. Right now, and, and and if he's right, then good for them. There's no. It's not like I'm saying he's wrong. I don't have the data he has. I just just sit there going, hmm. I wonder. I wonder if this is exactly what we'll see it shake out here in the next two or three years. Well, last week, uh, I didn't see this article to after the podcast was done. Uh, Sergio released a article, Exxon Mobil Awakens, and it talks about uh, them really gearing up and. and at this time about to really start drilling not only in the Permian but also East Texas. Uh, over the past week they filed for 53 drilling permits with the Railroad Commission of Texas. So it looks like they are uh, they're gearing up to, to, to get after it. So it's going to be interesting to watch them. What are they doing? Um, who are they looking at? I mean there could be smaller companies that are out there that they're looking to acquire. Uh, they're the one that really keep the eye on, I believe, for the next couple of months is to see what they do out there in the, in the Permian also as, as well as the Eagle for East Texas. Am, am I reading this right that this is the, the top 10 drillers and this is all of Texas um, for that week? Yes. So they so if according to Sergio here, I feel like I'm missing something here. Um, okay, but according to this, they are over twice as much. Uh, they have twice as many permits that they're going to they're, uh, whales they're going to drill uh, that week than the next second person down, which is Felix Energy. That's that's pretty impressive. It's not like it's they're number one by a short, uh, you know, by, by two or three. They're, they're they've doubled up the, the number two spot. Yeah, they've got fifty three, yeah. and then Felix got twenty one, and Chesapeake's got nineteen, and you can read the rest of them. And they had a link to all this stuff, but um, but yeah, I was, I mean, I was making sure I was reading that right. But that is that's crazy. That's that's a lot of permits compared to the number two person. Next up, we have a article from Reuters: uh, new new U.S. pipelines poised to start price war for shale shippers. 
this article basically argues that the Permian is overpiped, that there is more pipeline than is needed in the area. Um, this is the first article that I've seen that has made that statement. What they're saying is, is you're seeing some of the prices begin to drop for transporting the oil through the pipe, and he's saying that it's because there's too much supply of pipe and not enough demand for oil to meet those those needs to, to fill those pipelines. And so he mentions Epic Midstream and Plains All-American. They're opening lines in the coming months that will carry about 1.6 million barrels. And so the prices are looking like they're gonna be a little less to transport that oil than what they originally thought. Yeah, now you might remember, Josh, we talked well, I take that back. I don't know. You might not have been on here. We had Blackman on here one time. I can't remember if you were out or if he was on your own. Anyways, and we talked about this idea that eventually this was going to happen. They were going to kind of you know overshoot it. Um, it sounds like, according to this, that they've that they're a few months ahead of schedule because we were thinking, um, based upon some of the reports we saw last year, that it was going to be till you know end of the third quarter, fourth quarter, maybe even 2020 uh, before that was that was done. So, and I've I've heard I was talking with a trader the other day. And he said that that this was getting pretty close, and it seems that maybe it's closer than even he was anticipating or I was picking up on. I don't think it's a you know it's obviously not a long term problem. It's just it is it is where it is. But if drilling ramps back up um, at the beginning of 2020, then we have the spare capacity, which would be a good thing. Um, it's just it's just part of the cycle. So it is as you mentioned though. It seems like it's a few months ahead of schedule compared to what we had heard that was going to happen. Um, so I, I, I'm curious about how accurate this is. Obviously, I have no reason to doubt them. I just I'm kind of like you. I was like, oh, I didn't think it was going to be till you know end of this year instead of uh, middle of August. But good lord, it's middle of August already. How crazy is that? Like That's me and you were talking today, 2020 is just around the freaking corner. That's just it's just insane. Yeah. yeah, you know, it makes me wonder too. You know, if, if these prices going down are going to help some of these uh, upstream companies a good bit, make this thing a little easier for them. I know they they've been under quite a bit of pressure here for the past few months, so could be could be something that overall helps industry. Last uh, last article that we have before our guest comes on this uh, Texas oil regulator shift stance on oil and ga- or on gas flaring. Uh, this came out uh, August the 9th, so pretty new. And there was an unusual split vote by Texas regulators over the flaring of natural gas. And they've been pretty open and permissive of letting companies flare. What they're saying now is that people are flaring not out of necessity, just out of convenience. And so they're, uh, the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, he, uh, he came out and said that uh, he, di- he didn't think that Something needed to be done. That this, they're flaring too much. There's too much freedom there. So he's looking to tighten that down, which makes me wonder, Ryan, what are what are these companies going to do um, if they're not allowed to flare this gas? I mean, I yeah, um, it's a good question. And I'm not, ah, boy, this is one of the one of these where you really wonder: is this politics or is this actually going to be a change in policy? Um, because if I understand correctly, they didn't actually vote against it. It's just that Wayne Christian actually uh, cast the cast the first vote, I think, and maybe ever <laughs> to act to, 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 to potentially change the policy. Um, so I'm not. I, I've wondered about this because it's you know if they were to do it, it would be a, a monumental shift in policy. But 
I'm not ready to fully believe that they're going in um, on this. So that's kind of my, my general take is let, let's see let's see them change the policy before we know what's going to happen. With that being said, you know there's a lot of technology out there that is interested in and working with companies and producers to to make money and to um, turn that excess gas into something profitable. Um, you know one of the things that when I was out in Midland last week, a couple of things come up is we're working on a project right now that uses this uh, extra gas um, for Bitcoin mining. And so you can take it and you know, use the gas to power a, a Bitcoin mining machine and, um, you know, becomes more profitable, especially compared to what you're getting, which is nothing now. Um, there's a, another group that we met with that's looking to take the uh, natural gas and use it for diesel. And I wasn't exactly sure how all that worked or what was involved, but it was it was interesting to hear about that. So I think there's, I think the market is trying to figure out solutions. Um, the question is going to be: Is will the regula- regulators force the force the hands sooner, or can the market figure out ways? Because there there are people out there, like this Bitcoin mining group we've been talking to, who they're trying to figure out a way to take this excess gas and to turn it into profit. And so if you're an operator and you go, you know what, we got a lot of excess gas, um, the flaring thing might be changing. This is a potential. This is one way potentially to, you know, um, not only not lose money but make money on this, which you know mm. can help you in other areas. Obviously, anytime you're making more money, I'm not a business guru, but that seems to be a good thing. So uh, I'm, curious, I'm curious though. Do you think they actually are going to overturn the policy? Uh, I I don't for this reason. So uh, this little statement here, Williams. So Williams argued that because Exco's wells in the Eagleford Shell play in southern Texas are already connected to its pipelines, a driller shouldn't be allowed to burn off the fuel. But Exco came back and said that if they were to contract with Williams, it would result in a $146 million loss. So basically, they would have to pay them $146 million to take the gas is what mm-hmm. Exco is, is arguing mm-hmm. for there. So for that reason, I don't think that these regulators are going to come in and take away their ability to flare in the near future, You know, at least for a year minimum, um, just to give them time to, to do something. Now, next year, who knows, especially with the presidential election coming up, I don't, I don't know that the flaring would last very long with uh, different, you know, different leadership. Well, today we have a special guest, uh, geopolitical strategist Peter Zihan. Peter, glad to get you on the show today, man. How's it going? Uh, it's been a great day. I'm here in Colorado, actually. Home for once. All right. Well, Peter, um, about a month ago, I picked up one of your books, maybe a month and a half ago, The Accidental Superpower. And, uh, man, it was just fascinating. So I, I, I talked to Nate and asked him to see if he could reach out to you and get you on the show. So uh, everybody, kudos to Nate for, for getting Peter on. Peter, um, I, I know that uh, you've been writing a couple books lately. So uh, how, what's, what's life been like? Uh, you've been traveling much last month or two? Uh, my core premise is that the, the world that we understand, the world that we know, the world of free trade and globalization is all coming to an end. And now that most folks are starting to accept that, I've been incredibly busy. I, I speak to a lot of companies and help them figure out what sort of challenges and opportunities internationally will be coming their way. Uh, in energy markets, obviously, that hits oil and gas at every stage of the process. Uh, but it keeps me very busy. It keeps me in a lot of trouble. And so last week was the first week that I have been home all week in over a year, and it's fantastic. 
Yeah, I bet, man. So I mentioned in that book, Accidental Superpower, you uh, you make several predictions. Uh, one of them is U.S.'s energy inter- independence um, and kind of resulting from our withdrawal from governing mar- maritime trade, NATO. Uh, you, you make that comment. Do you Have you seen in the last couple of years um, things that validate the predictions you made back in 2016? Um, you know, what did you get right? What did you get wrong? What are some of the developments you've seen that have kind of validated your predictions? Well, just to kind of give you the runway, uh, back in 2014, when the first book, That's Accidental Superpower, came out, I didn't try to put too many numbers on things because the shale industry was still relatively young. And so I simply said that it looked like by the end of the decade, 2020, uh, the United, North America as a whole was going to be energy independent, and that would change how the Americans function. Uh, because if uh, the United States no longer has a strategic need to maintain the global system because the Cold War is over, and it no longer has an economic rationale to maintain it because of the shale revolution, uh, the U.S. was just going to do different things on a smaller scale. Uh, to the degree that that forecast was right or wrong, if anything, I was just being too conservative. Uh, the shale sector has outperformed all expectations of even the most optimistic predictions every year for the last six years. And so the United States, even without Canada, even without Mexico, is going to be a net exporter of every energy product that humans consume by the end of this year. Uh, and we have seen that evolution and economic economic norms change the way the Americans act strategically. Uh, we're getting out of all of the wars, whether it's Afghanistan or Yemen or Saudi Arabia or whatever. Uh, that has been coming not just under Trump, but under Obama and even under W. Bush. And we're seeing American drawdowns of every military facility we have everywhere on the planet. Germany, Italy, Korea, Japan, you name it. In fact, we've only had one location in the last 12 months that has seen an increase in combat capability, and that's Syria. And that's gone from 1,500 troops to 2,000 against a backdrop of tens of thousands of troops coming home. So right now, the United States has fewer troops stationed abroad than at any time since the Great Depression, and we're not done yet. We were, we were talking before you got on here. The Saudi Aramco has announced that they are potentially going to go through with their IPO next year, 2021. Um, I think there's plenty of reason for folks to be skeptical about that, but... With that being said, I think it's a that's a sign that maybe oil prices will stay up. Um, when you were studying this, I was curious. There's it seems to be a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions on why the Saudis do what they do, how they work with the U.S. Just give me a. I, I know the focus of the book is um, you start off with geography and how that ties in, which is quite fascinating. But just from your standpoint, how should Americans think about what the Saudis are doing? Um, obviously, they have a different uh, a different political system, but in general, how should we over here look at what the Saudis are doing, and how should we interpret when we hear news um, from Saudi Arabia? Uh, key thing to keep in mind about the Saudis is because they're basically an oil kingdom. Uh, they went from being a pre-industrial nomadic society to one of the world's most cash-rich in literally one generation. So we think in the United States of China as being the big superpower that's coming of age because of the rapid industrialization. That's nothing compared to uh, what has happened in Saudi Arabia with the, the change in culture and the change in capabilities and the change in reach. Uh, You combine that with the fact that they are the holders of the Islamic holy cities, and there's a degree of um, 
uh, what's the right term, manifest destiny that the Saudis feel. They feel that uh, God himself has granted them the right to be in a superpower and has made them the most important people on the planet. You combine that with the oil markets, and they don't see why they should do any work whatsoever. So they import millions of what they call guest workers to do everything from scrubbing toilets to building infrastructure to flying the Air Force. The United States played right into this. During the Cold War, the United States had to maintain a global alliance to fight the Soviets, and in order to have a global alliance, you had to have fuel. So the independence of Saudi Arabia was a key tenant of American strategic policy. Without Saudi Arabia, there would have been no Japan, there would have been no NATO, there would have been no uh, Soviet-Chinese split back in the 70s. Saudi Arabia was central to all of it. But the Cold War is now over, and because of shale, the United States is no longer interested in oil markets in the way they used to be. So all of a sudden, Saudi Arabia has seen everything about their national myth break, and they were the first country in the world to think about the implications of a world without the United States. And so they have had to become much more aggressive in everything is they used to be able to call up Washington, make a request, and nine times out of 10, they would get what they want. Now, there's no way guarantee that the phone will even be picked up. So what they're doing is kind of falling into three general brackets. Uh, number one, whenever they find someone within their society who has a penchant for violence, uh, they recruit that person. They get them hopped up on drugs, they, they give them a bunch of cash and a bunch of weapons, and they push them into a war zone where they fight for the greater glory of the House of Saud. Uh, we know some of these groups as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, they're not particularly nice people, and it's not that Saudi Arabia controls every tactical action that they take, but Saudi Arabia definitely pushes them in the right direction. Uh, the second big piece is they've had to figure out how to work all of this military equipment they have. Their whole idea was they they buy all this American hardware, and then whenever there was a war that needed fought, they'd call up Washington, and the American president would dispatch troops to Saudi Arabia where they'd pick up all this equipment and operate it for Saudis. Well, that won't work anymore. So they've had to actually go out and find other countries to train them on their weapons. And the country that they've had the most fruitful relationship with now is, Saudi, or is uh, Israel, of all places. So the Israelis are teaching the Saudis how to use American equipment. And if you look at some of the wars that the Saudis have become involved in, like, say, Yemen, you may notice that the, uh, the Saudis are bombing locations in Yemeni cities without having any intelligence as to what's going on on the ground. That's because it's just target practice. It's like, you know, somebody says, see if you can hit that blue roof over there, and they aim for it. So it's not a traditional war. It's just a proving ground. <laughs> and then the third piece of the strategy is to basically destroy the entire Middle East. Uh, the Saudis centuries-old fear is of Iran, and Iran has a million-man army, and the fear is that without the United States there to protect them, eventually Iran will sweep in, take Iraq, take Kuwait, and come for Saudi Arabia. It's probably a fairly realistic fear, and so the, the Saudi strategy is to strike first, and is to sow so much chaos and so much discord and, and cause so many terror attacks throughout the entire northern periphery, all the way from Lebanon to eastern Iran, that that whole place burns down. Civilization itself collapses. Because if that happens, 
the Iranians can't advance. They're, they're not armored. It's all infantry. If you take off all the infrastructure and the capacity of that land to support populations, you can't attack through it with an infantry force. Uh, it's absolutely morally repugnant. And it goes against everything that the United States has always said that it stands for. But that doesn't mean it won't work. Peter, before uh, 2014, retrieving oil in the U.S., uh, it cost uh, quite a bit more. As a response to the downturn, U.S. Uh, found ways, problem-solved technology to bring down those costs. How do you see the, the relationship between the U.S. and the Saudis and oil price? How do you see that playing out from the U.S. perspective? So I, I see some of what you're saying with the Saudis. How will that impact us if we are becoming more independent? We've drove down uh, the retrieval of oil prices uh, so that we can get oil at a more efficient cost. Do you think that anything that the Saudis do is going to impact us very much at this point? Uh, that's kind of a messy question, so let me kind of unpack that a little bit. So uh, back in 2014, break-even prices full cycle in the U.S. shale patch was probably about $90 a barrel. Uh, between breakthroughs in water management and data management and drilling and seismic, we are probably today between 35 and $40 a barrel on average, with some areas in the Permian already below 20 uh, on average, U.S. shale production costs are certainly going to be below 30 sometime next year, and full cycle break even prices in Saudi Arabia are only 25. So we're, we're approaching price parity with Saudi Arabia, uh, and that's before you count the insurance and shipping costs for shipping something from the Persian Gulf to the U.S. Uh, Gulf of Mexico coast. Uh, so we're probably already floating with price parity. Uh, that changes the math. And it means that the only reason for the United States to be involved in policy in the Persian Gulf at large uh, is strategic. It's no longer economic. So the question becomes whether or not American attitudes towards the countries of the Persian Gulf region, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Qatar, or Iran, are sufficiently interesting from Washington's point of view to maintain the relationship. Now, under the Trump administration, uh, in order to solidify support from certain aspects of the political base, the Trump administration is very anti-Iranian. And in that fight, an alliance with Saudi Arabia and Israel still makes a great amount of sense. But if you look past the current obsession that Americans have with Iran, if you look back to before 1990, excuse me, before 1980, or maybe 20 to 30 years in the future, the picture changes a lot. Uh, traditionally, the United States likes to maintain a balance of power relationship. And we like to back the, uh, the less powerful countries against stronger countries. It keeps everything kind of in flux locally, but means that we never have to dedicate troops. And one of the big failures of the Iraq war is we disrupted the power balance and we completely eliminated a power, Iraq, and then had to replace it to balance the local powers ourselves. And that required 100,000 troops. That required a lot of casualties. And that was something Americans really didn't care for. But in a world where Saudi Arabia is basically taking a flamethrower to everything, you have to really ask the question whether or not Iran is the superior or the inferior power, because the math is changing. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the one who can get their oil out even if the Persian Gulf is closed. Uh, Iran is a much poorer country. Iran's military is not projection-based. 
and establishing a balance of power in the region is all of a sudden really, really easy. All you have to do is step back. So whether or not you want Iran or Saudi Arabia to ultimately win, now is a beautiful time to simply disengage. And then we can play favorites down the road if we want to. Uh, the Shell Revolution has absolutely made this far better of an option for us because it's uh, reduced the leverage that either the Saudis or the Iranians have over us. So, like right now, let's assume for the moment that the Iranians carry out their age-old threat and actually close the Strait of Hormuz. Well, the Saudis and the Emirates now have bypass pipelines. And the new sanctions regime has almost reduced Iranian exports to zero. So you're talking about a total disruption of oil markets of less than 6 million barrels a day. Now, that's still a lot. They'll probably still result in oil prices going up 30, 40, 50, $60 a barrel. But that's far, that's a far cry from what would have happened 10 years ago when that same action would have disrupted 20 million barrels per day of exports. Uh, on the flip side, let's say uh, the Saudis go all out and they strike uh, via terrorist attacks throughout their northern periphery and do a lot of damage in places like uh, Iraq, Iran, and maybe even Kuwait. Again, that only takes off about six million barrels per day. Uh, and there's this little quirk in American law that says that uh, the oil exports only from the United States only proceed uh, unless or only proceed if the U.S. president allows them. So with a single executive order, the president can constrain American oil exports. And when that happens, regardless of why it needs to happen, you can have high oil prices globally and a super saturated market in the United States locally. So you're going to have oil prices hit a peak in the United States in that environment of 60, maybe even 50, because at that price point, all the U.S. shale fields are uh, price competitive. But globally, you'll have a shortage, not just because American crude is no longer getting out, but because Persian Gulf crude in some ways is constrained. And so you can have prices easily go up by $100 a barrel or more. And that bifurcation in oil prices, if you look back at price history before World War II, that was normal. The United Kingdom had their system, the French had their system, the Dutch had theirs, the Germans had theirs, the Americans had theirs, and so on. There really wasn't a globally traded oil market. It was a series of regional systems that were in part dominated by the old empires. Uh, this idea that events in Palestine or South Africa or uh, Mexico can change the global price, that's relatively new. And in the system we're moving to, the United States just doesn't have very many security threats, but it's got surplus oil production, and that's a fantastic position to be in both economically and strategically. Um, we are getting up to our time here, so I want to be respectful of that. First, thanks for coming on. But I do have to ask. I, I have told Josh, and we talked about this offline. We don't do a lot of uh, global geopolitical stuff, but I've, I've, Josh and I have talked offline, and I've often wondered, you know, can the large nation state survive just because of the way that demographics are changing and people's opinions and people are divided? And the United States, obviously, is a clear example of 
division amongst the people. And I was looking as we were getting ready to get you on today, and I see you have a book coming out next year, Disunited Nations, The Scramble for Power in an Ungoverned World. So I just have to ask, what is the, the thesis of this book? And it comes out, it looks like, um, we'll get Nate to link to it in the show notes, it looks like it's coming out on February 4th of 2020. So give us the, uh, a high-level book of what we could expect if we were to pick that up. Disunited Nations is a project that I've been wanting to write for about 20 years. It's about what the world looks like after the global system falls apart. Uh, I had originally planned to write it a couple of years from now, but uh, in part because of the Trump administration and the trade war, things got uh, greatly accelerated, and I figured I'd better get it out sooner rather than later. Uh, the short version is, is if you remove the Americans from the equation, if you remove the global system from functioning and if you take the americans out and that's the primary piece that keeps the global system working what happens next uh, we, we go into a disorderly period where everything breaks down where global trade goes away where international energy markets shatter into a series of regionally traded systems and then people start fighting over the remnants the day after all that ends who is still there and the, the book is primarily about the winner's circles about the handful of countries that will actually thrive in that sort of environment and spoiler alert it's not china it's not russia it's not brazil it's not germany it's not any of the countries that we have come to think of as the major up-and-comers because what makes those countries russia and china and germany and so on what makes them powerful is the american presence these are countries that have never been successful throughout human history unless they had had access to global markets. And if you remove that, most of them just melt away. And so the book is ultimately about the next crop of powers who don't need American sponsorship to be successful. Okay, and we'll look forward to that, Nate. Make sure to link to the pre-order. Um, I, I see it's on Amazon. I know I have your book, um, The Accidental Superpower, on Audible. Will you be releasing an Audible for this one as well? It will be. Uh, I haven't sat down to record that yet, but that's okay. my task for next month. Okay, so we'll go ahead and link to it on Amazon. Of course, Amazon owns Audible, so that will all be there. Where else can uh, people find you? Where do you want to point people to? I know we were talking offline. We both might be at a conference at the end of this month. Go ahead and plug, promote, push people wherever they need to go. Uh, well, you can go to Zion.com. That's Z-E-I-H-A-N.com, and you can sign up for my newsletter. It's free. Uh, conferences are usually by invite only, so I can't help you out there, but there are three books. So starts out with Accidental. That's the world as it came to be in its current shape and where it's taking us. The second one is The Absent Superpower, and that's the energy-centric book. It starts with the shale revolution, shows how the technologies are evolving, and then plays it forward to show the wars that will erupt around the world as a result. And then finally, The United Nations comes out in February. Okay. And the conference I'm referring to at the end of the month, that is open to the public, right? That's the one up in Colorado Springs? Uh, it is in Colorado Springs. I do not know if it's open to the public. I'm sorry. I'm not the organizer well, of these things. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I, don't, I think it's a... Yeah, you have to buy a ticket. It's not. I don't think it's free to get in, but you do have to buy a ticket. But it's uh, it's the ECC conference um, in Colorado Springs. Peter will be speaking there. I think tickets, as of this recording, are still available. Yes, they are. So that's August twenty eighth through thirty first in Colorado Springs. So if you want to go and check him out, talking to a bunch of mainstream folks, he'll be there. Peter, thank you so much. We'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. And uh, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Peter. Y'all take care. 
thanks again for Peter Zihan, geopolitical strategist, for coming on the show, giving us some insights into the Saudis and uh, and the overall landscape. Um, I think paints a pretty optimistic picture of the United States' position and uh, and shale. Ryan, we have our Texas Roundup. We have a well, few things on, we want to know. Hold on. The, the real question is going to be is what does Speaker say? That's yeah. that's the real question. What what does Speaker say? I got a feeling he's going to want to weigh in on this. So uh, Speaker says segment next week might be, <laughs> might be interesting. Be interesting. Yeah. And, hey, just so you guys know, that conference, I think he was confused about uh, which conference I was talking about. We are linking to the conference I was referring to in the show notes. And so uh, folks that might want to attend that, um, they can uh, they can check it out. Well, for the Texas Roundup, uh, Oklahoma Oil and Gas Company looks to get in on the Permian, bull, uh, Permian Boom. Uh, this company, Alliance Resource Partners, requ- acquired about 9,000 royalty acres in the Midland Basin. So that's the third time the Midland Basin's come up this week, So, uh, or the last day, actually. So Midland Basin is definitely heating up. Chevron Phillips, EVX Midstream partner on plastic water pipeline in Eagle in the Eagleford. I almost put this uh, in our in one of our show articles, Ryan. It, it looked pretty interesting, um, but substantially, uh, substantially, the EVX partners and uh, and Chevron, they're going to buy high temperature plastic piping for more than a 300 mile saltwater disposal pipeline project in the Eagleford. So definitely interesting. I, I want to see how many companies are going to follow this because it could actually bring some cost savings in. So um, we'll definitely follow up with that in the next week or two. Sanchez Energy files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. This came out this morning. And guess uh, and a, guess who sent that to me when I woke up? I woke up to a text from our boy Speakner. Uh, let me know here it was so uh he's going scoreboard on that one i think saying hey this is what and, and they and all, and all you know all fairs this it's sanchez i don't think has made money since uh well let's see here my last she they hadn't made money since my last two children have been born for sure maybe my last three so it's not a not a, a huge surprise well, at one time, you know, they were worth uh, quite a bit of money, at $2.1 billion in assets. So they're not just a, you know. Here's the strategy that all shell producers and all businesses really should deploy. Go to buy someone out and get the $1 billion don't work with me fee. That should be the, I, I'm going to write a book, How to Make a Billion Dollars. And I think it's just like one page, go to buy someone out, have a pre-negotiated billion dollar don't talk to me fee, and then get that fee. I think that's that seems to be the ticket to success. You do that 10 times, you've got $10 billion. What else do you need in life? Yeah. Take notes from Chevron. <laughs> so, uh, Ryan, we, we had a we had an interesting show uh, about ducks uh, about a week or two ago. And there was a response, I say a response, um, a slight response from Rystad of, uh, from the Journey on Petroleum, the JPT, Journal of Petroleum Technology. And they talk about the Permian and the production, and they have, you know, it's not an extensive response, but it does mention a couple of stats. And I uh, just want to let our listeners know that we are gearing up. We're getting a couple of articles here, and we're going to have a, a more robust uh, conversation on this probably toward the end of the month this month. Uh, just know that on, on the ducks and the product, productivity of the whales in the Permian, we are 
putting some stuff together and, and are going to be addressing you know, the Kairos uh, report that we went over along with some of the responses that's coming out almost daily now. So um, definitely something to keep, uh, keep a lookout for toward the end of the month. And with, with that, Ryan, uh, I, think that, I think that wraps us up. Is there anything else? Yep. <clears throat> Mount Rushmore shirt ideas, TexasLongGasPodcast.com, five-star rating and review. Let's try to get to the top four. We'll get some shirts made. We'll do a giveaway. I don't know. We'll get 100, 200, I don't know, something like that. Um, we have uh, so many listeners who haven't rated and reviewed it, so we would really, really, really appreciate that to get us up there. And, and, and you know, let's be honest here. The boys at Apple, they're probably trying to hold us back. They probably don't want the Texas Oil and Gas podcast up there in the top four. So uh, we got to show them how we do it down here in the great state of Texas, how we do it down here in the oil field, and um, you know, try to try to pump it up there, get us to the Mount Rushmore status. Josh, I will be in Houston for NAEP. So if you are down there for NAEP, let me know. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, Nate will hook you up with my LinkedIn in the show notes, or you can reach us through the website, TexasOilandGasPodcast.com. And until next time, keep climbing.